I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Earlier this week, cast and crew of The Lion King musical were targeted by racist and homophobic abuse as they made their way home from performances in Dublin. Tonight we ask, new antisocial behaviour initiatives, are they needed to tackle such abuse? I come home sometimes around nine. I'm always afraid. I stay on the phone to my mother, sometimes my friends. Senator Catherine Arda opens up about her own IVF experience and her hopes that a new bill will help couples on their journeys to parenthood. But at the time, I didn't think of anything else in the world, like nothing that mattered to me except the idea to have a, a child. And looking back, I was probably suffering from some sort of infertility type depression. And later, motorists bought a record number of new electric cars last month as diesel sales plunged. But is this enough to meet climate change targets? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightPNTV. this week, several performers and crew members of the Lion King musical were subjected to racial abuse. This incident has again highlighted the prevalence of racial abuse and antisocial behaviour here. A little earlier, our reporter Sive Cox spoke to people in Dublin City about how safe they feel walking around the capital city. Here's a flavour of what people had to say to us. People can be a bit unhinged on the streets now, especially since the COVID restrictions have relaxed and everything. There's a lot more people out and about. I think when stuff was closed at eight, it was like, you'd be walking home from work and there's people throwing up outside. So it's like, I think it's better. I still feel better walking down the street in the south side of the Dublin rather than probably the city or the northern side. Like I would rush back to home before eight if that's all possible. I come home sometimes around nine. I'm always afraid. I stay on the phone to my mother, sometimes my friends. Not everywhere, some places. I, I usually, if I think places is not safe, I avoid it. I'm, it's a little less safe lately, I noticed. Uh, there's a bit more aggression about at night in certain places, but um, um, it's uh, generally Dublin is a fair city compared to the other travesties I was in. Well, it depends on oh, yeah, the, the time, and it also depends if there's a lot of people in the street or not. Well, here with me now in studio is Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga, Sinn Féin TD Louisa Riley, criminologist Trina O'Connor, and via Skype tonight we're joined by retired Assistant Garda Commissioner Dr Jack Nolan. You're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, Trina, let's talk first about the racial abuse that the Lion King cast at Borgosh Theatre were subjected to as they made their way home from performances this week. Many people may have been shocked at what happened to them, but experience and research shows that sadly this is not uncommon. 
No, it's not uncommon. These kind of um, what, what we call microaggressions that people are faced with every day um, are, are something that very often aren't reported because they're just something that people have to deal with. I think because this is high profile, people are hearing about it. But if you talk to anybody from the BAM community or even people with a disability, any of these communities will tell you that they face um, um, violence on the street, they face aggressive language, they face slurs on a daily basis. So it's not unusual. Um, so just because it's high profile, people are hearing about it more. And most people just get on with it because they don't know what to do. Um, and it's just become part of, of their life. Yeah, Yemi, as a black woman, have you been subjected to similar abuse? I certainly have, Claire. Um, my children have. I have four kids. Um, I'll just give you a, perhaps an example that many people might be able to relate with. When I ran in the local elections in 2019, at the doors, I remember particularly one man asking me if I thought I was intelligent enough to run. And every time I spoke, he kept pretending like he didn't understand what I was saying. Um, my son, who is now 13, came home one day when he was in primary school, and he said to me that some, some of the kids around the area where we lived at the time had asked him permission to use the N-word for him. Now, these are kids. Nobody's born racist. We learn to be racist. And if we can learn to be racist, we can learn to be anti-racist. So we have a lot of work to do in that regard. One thing is clear. Ireland is a multicultural nation now. And a lot of migrants who are here are here to live, to build their lives, to contribute to the economy. I have four children. I have two grandchildren. I'm first-generation migrant. My children are second-generation migrants. My two grandsons are third-generation migrants. I'm concerned about them. And what we need to begin to do is to have conversations about how we can live together, how we can understand, understand ourselves better, learn more about ourselves, and create a platform mm. where we can have difficult conversations and not run away from conversations that we're afraid of. There's a lot of fear fear of the unknown, because people sometimes would say they don't understand some other people from other cultures. Let's just have conversations. It sounds like what you're, what you're saying is, Yemi, is it's an education issue. Absolutely. Education is a big part of what we're talking about. I know that uh, there's a lot of work ongoing on hate crime legislation. Um, uh, there was a, a, a call, I think, some late la year before the last for consultation. So major stakeholders got involved in that. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, mm -hmm. has uh, uh, developed a draft hate crime legislation legislation. That's great. And that will address a number of things. However, you cannot legislate your way into a person's heart. Mm -hmm. This is where education is key, where we need to give people a reorientation and a better understanding yeah. of the society we'll live in. It's a really good point Yemi's making, Louise, that um, these conversations aren't being had necessarily. People are frightened to go there to call it out when they see it taking place on the street and 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 for the victims for people who are you know feeling this and, and hearing this every day they feel they've they've nowhere to go with this but to get on with their lives yeah i think that we do we do need to start having those and we want to call them uncomfortable conversations well then let's have them um you know and and uh, that's a good point that you made you know racism we're not born racist you know, people learn it, right? And if you can learn to be racist, you can learn to be not just not be racist. We must be 
anti-racist. We must be active. So when we see it, we must call it out. So if we see it on the street, we must call it out and challenge all forms. So, you know, racism against people of colour, against members of the travelling community. We can't, there are words that we should not use, right? They might be words that I used when I was younger or you used when you were younger. And maybe we could use the excuse that maybe 20, 30 years ago, yes, that, that, that we didn't realise how offensive those words are now. We know how offensive some of the language is and we need to not just police ourselves, but we need to be active. So when the, when the racist joke is said, we need to be the ones that say, that is not funny and it's not funny for a whole range of reasons. So allyship is about more than just saying, I am not a racist and I'm just going to put myself back in here. It's about being proactive, being mm -hmm. anti-racist and being vocal about it. And that gives, in my experience, that gives people a real confidence to be able to have the conversation. If you lead the conversation, other people will join because I have a great belief that people do not want to discriminate. They do not want to be racist. And if we need to go to meet people where they are to help with language, to help with a, a space to have those conversations, well, then let's do it. But we have to talk about it and we have to be free to have discussions about it. And we have to acknowledge that there might be people who need to learn. So let's help them. But let's do it. Not just as saying, I'm not a racist. Tick that box, go away. It's about being anti-racist. Pro pro and proactive about it. I want to bring um, Dr. Jack Nolan in here. Jack, as a retired assistant, guard the commissioner and someone who's really focused a lot of their work in this area around you know race racist legislation about ed education and trying to counter the problem of it what do you see as the solution because one of the challenges must be prosecuting this sort of microaggression th these sort of crimes uh, yes Claire and um I, I have to say I agree with Yemi there when she talks about the need for education. And it was something that the uh, the, the Garda organisation recognised as far back as 2006 uh, when they introduced as one of their key strategic objectives of uh, cultural diversity. And following on from that, the, the Garda organisation redesigned its training programme. One of its foundation training programmes had a whole module on uh, ethnic and cultural diversity. I suppose you could divide up what the Angarda Shiakana does into three phases. Uh, I suppose um, education and training wise, it has a raft of training programs. Uh, from a, an operational perspective, it has the Grado office, the Garda Racial Intercultural and Diversity Office, who interact with a variety of diverse communities uh, across Ireland and who also engage operationally when you have um, racially motivated incidents or indeed serious crimes that involve hate against an individual. And then strategically, uh, the Garda organisation has picked up on the recommendations of putting human rights at the centre of policing as set out in the Commission on the Future of Policing. It also has a strategic human rights advisory group, which includes most of the uh, NGOs in this particular area uh, throughout the organisation. And indeed, it has a, a new diversity and inclusion strategy so that it's doing a lot to make its members aware of what's required in this area. And that then needs to be translated. Yeah, and I can see there's a lot of planning around that. But just on the point um, around, you know, policing culture itself needing to change, needing to adapt, the Irish Network Against Racism saying the response to these crimes, when people come forward and say, this has happened to me, is not always appropriate. It's not always taken seriously. Do you believe it needs to improve in order to see it improve right across society? 
Well, I, I think like the police force is a microcosm of society. It has to improve across the, the whole of Irish society. Uh, so the police will always have room for improvement. But as I was saying, I think they are taking a lot of important steps in, the, in this regard. And uh, I, I think one of the big issues has been low reportage rates. Uh, Ireland has very low reportage rates around uh, hate crime, uh, and which incidentally doesn't currently exist in our uh, in legislation. I know the uh, the new act is going through the, the door. I think it's at Shannon reading stage at this point in time. And you're reliant on a 1989 prohibition of incitement to hatred act, which was a product of its time. And it, okay. it did, uh, 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 it, it allowed for okay. a lot of activity in relation sure. to publications, etc. But Jack, not really what's required today. What's required Sorry, today. Jack, there. I just want to bring the rest of the panel in on that one. Um, uh, Trina, what do you make of that in terms of what's being done? And actually, what needs to be done at a very practical level now. Okay, I, I don't want to contradict um, Dr Jacka, but, but the, the health crime legislation was um, passed in 2021 and it's to be enacted in the next couple of months, um, the, the general headings of that. So it's in the process. And that is a review of that 1989 um, law. But I think what needs to be done, apart from criminalising people, I think picking up on Yemi's point is the education piece needs to be done. So if somebody is um, convicted or um, they, they are being involved in a hate crime, we need to look at this in a restorative intervention piece. And that's where the education piece can be done having them conversations, pursuing people to have them conversations and just picking up on something that Louise said when Louise said earlier, maybe 20 years ago we used language and we know now not to use it. That speaks to this education piece. And also what we need to have is proper representation. We need to see people from all of these communities in all walks of life, from the doll down. We need to see them in the guards. There was an embargo put on that whole diversity recruitment yeah. once the austerity measures came in in 2009. That needs to be scaled up again. We need to make sure that people have role models that they can aspire to be. Mm -hmm. If this is truly to be an inclusive community, everybody should be represented at every level of society. And Yemi, do you believe that people understand the idea of white privilege it's very, uh, you know a theme that's very much come into play with black lives matter um, in the US that white people have an advantage in life simply because of the color of their skin we don't even necessarily know we have this advantage because we haven't lived in your shoes but that's the reality mm. and do you think people understanding that would help us all in turn um, improve our behavior and improve the situation that's absolutely so I difficult absolutely I think if people understand it a lot more, they will. It would help. I have a friend who lives in uh, Waterford, and she shared with me uh, reading a book recently, which helped her understand. She's white Irish, by the way, which helped her understand that she does have white privileges, and people need to understand that there is such a thing called white privilege, and to use it for good. So you can use your privileges and use them for good. And I totally agree with what you said there, Trina. Representation, representation, representation. See it, be it. It's important for our society. Uh, Dr. Jack had mentioned there that um, people, we do have very low reportage of um, um, hate crime incidents. It's because people are afraid. If you look at some migrants, their dealings with police in their countries, mm -hmm. they have no engagement because they're too scared. So uh, for a person like that to go and report an, a racist incident to the guards here 
and they don't get a response, others would definitely not follow. Um, also, Louise, like looking at the wider subject when we were talking about that feeling of safety on our streets and um, the sense out there that there is a rise in this uh, antisocial behaviour, there is a rise that your own personal safety is under threat when you leave your home. Um, in your own constituency, say, are you seeing evidence of that? Are you hearing about an increased level of antisocial behaviour and what people are, are doing about that? And if there's a fear there to step up and stop it. Like we talked about the mm -hmm. stepping up when you hear about racist abuse, but there is a deep fear there that if you do call it out, you're going to be at the receiving end. And indeed, that's why we need bystander intervention training so that people know when they can uh, step up, when they should step up and what they can do. Because very often it's something very simple. You know, you're sitting on the, on the Lewis or you're sitting on the train and you see someone being racially abused. You say, do you have the right time there? Uh, what, you know, what, 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 I'm sorry, can I sit down there? And it's small little things mm -hmm. that you can do. In my own area, uh, I represent, and I am really, really proud to represent one of the most diverse constituencies in this state. So I'm a member of an organisation called Fingal Communities Against Racism. And what we do as a group uh, we make ourselves visible within our communities and we mm. just say to people, we're not having that. Yeah. We are not willing to live in a society that is not tolerant, that will not tolerate people from, uh, from other backgrounds, that will not tolerate travellers. We, we are going to say no as a community and that's what we do. So we are visible in our own area, you know, we, but we try to, to bring our yeah. allyship to I, this. I, I just want to talk, you mentioned there about sitting on the bus or sitting on the train. The issue around safety on transport, it's one that comes back again and again and Jack, on this, in terms of policing in this area, it, it surely is a challenge, but we don't have transport police in this country compared to other countries where, you know, it's widespread, shouldn't we? Uh, look, it's, it's a, a topic for debate. Uh, traditionally, on Garda Síochána has provided that uh, type of policing. Um, it's not common to see a policeman or woman on a train in Ireland or on a bus but um, other countries have gone that way. It's an area that needs to be considered. Uh, I'm sure the Garda Commissioner is taking particular note of it. We hear the stories, we heard the news stories today about drug use on Lewis uh, lines, etc. But overall, um, public order incidents, they're, they're, they've been down for the last couple of years. I know heavily influenced by, by COVID. And, and, and most of the uh, Areas that cause harm have have fallen, homicides, etc., are down. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't see a problem with having a dedicated guardian. Uh, sorry, anecdotally, at least. Um, that's not the sense, I feel, like just from listening, you know, and, and getting that reaction from the streets today, that's not necessarily how people feel, at least, about the situation regarding their own safety. Um, is there something to be said for increased deterrence in this area? You know, people talk about education, but there's also tweets coming in, more than education, we need to prosecute perpetrators. That goes for race crime, but also goes in the area of, of you know, antisocial behaviour. Are there enough deterrents there, do you believe? Well, one of, one of the best deterrents for any type of crime is, is police presence, uh, and police presence can take many forms. Um, uh, the security on the Lewis lines did do a, 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 an excellent job, but the real Garda numbers, the Garda presence on the streets, uh, that's what reduces uh, public order. And we have examples of that uh, many times in Dublin City and other major centres. When you have 
proactive public order policing, you get uh, reduced incidents, albeit you may probably get arrests, extra arrests for a while, but uh, thereafter the problem generally dissipates. Yeah, and it's, it's the visual, isn't it? It's the idea of the Gardaí patrolling the streets that helps everyone feel safe in this regard. Um, you know, on that and talking about, you know, antisocial behaviour and, um, uh, you know, going back to community level on this one, um, what's now needed and what, what would help this situation where it is simply thuggish behaviour and a lot has talked about, well, let's talk about community where people are coming from, deprivation and that cycle that feeds into it. But where do you start now and what needs to happen, Trina? So, so community partnerships is where it happens and even partnerships with the guards. So say, for example, if we did have a transport police, the guards should be accompanied by navigator youth workers who can support their work with the youths that are causing harms on the DART. And that approach is less... Um, adversarial, it's less confrontational, it's about you know, creating dialogue between young people and not a them and us situation and um, finding out what's going on for them young people, maybe offering them young people supports and that's how we change our culture. Would you agree with that Yemi? Absolutely. Um, there's an adage from the part, I'm originally from Nigeria, and there's an adage from the part of Nigeria where I come from which says that a child we have not raised will destroy the house we have built. Mm. And so we need to work together as a community to support parents who have challenges in raising their children. I run a project called the Boys to Men Project, and it's focused on raising our boys to be good men. If we take a model like that and start to work together, have role models within communities who young people can look up to mm. and they help. It's not just the parents, it takes a whole village to raise a child. Yeah, uh, when, when we're talking about that and, and education and all these other programs that are in place, do you think, um, Louise, that it needs to go hand in hand with the likes of a transport police being in place in our cities? But I think we need, we definitely need extra policing on our transport, right? Whether it's a dedicated transport uh, police or whether it's on Garda Shiakana being resourced to be able to do it, we definitely need that. But we also need to look within our own community. So, I mean, uh, you know, Dr. Jack makes the point there that the Gardaí are a microcosm of the, the rest of society. So let's not pretend that they're above racial profiling or any of that. So we need to look within on Garda Shiakana. We also need to look within our own organisations, within our own within our own communities and we need to be really vocal in our allyship every single time at every single opportunity because it's not enough just to not be racist we must be anti-racist and we have to start with the people who live in our communities if they're travelers if they're minorities whoever those people are we need to be very vocal visible and loud about our allyship okay well, let's see. Will, will change come about? Um, it has been slow, but, but uh, it's all about attitudes changing, education and resourcing. My thanks to Dr Jack Nolan and criminologist Trina O'Connor. Yemi and Louise will be staying with us. After the break, Senator Catherine Arda on our IVF journey. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back. Now, last month, the Shannon heard how women are having to duck and dive from workplaces to undergo IVF or other fertility treatment because there are no entitlements to leave under current labour laws. A new bill proposes a right to reproductive leave for workers undergoing fertility treatment or who suffer a pregnancy loss. Well, a little earlier, I sat down with Fianna Fáil Senator Catherine Arda, who opened up on her own IVF journey. Um, you're campaigning for change to the support that's offered to couples who are going through IVF and fertility treatments. And for you, it's personal. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? My story starts over five years ago when myself and my husband decided we'd like to try for a family. Um, we thought it would be something quite simple. <laughs> but ultimately, it wasn't to be, it wasn't to be simple. Um, and we came to the realisation that we needed some support. So we went to our local GP. The GP put me in touch with the Coombe Hospital. Um, in the Coombe, they were very good. And they did, I started a process, a fertility treatment called um, follicle tracking. A lot of people will do that. And they'll do a few months of it before they go down the IVF route. So we did a few months of that. It didn't work. So, but like every time it didn't work, it's it's really it's, it's like it's, it's very difficult because you have you put all your hopes into whatever treatment you're doing at the time, thinking this is going to be it, this is going to be our jackpot, um, and it's going to work, and we're going to have our little family that we've always dreamed of. But that didn't work, and then we came to the realization that we were going to need um, to go down the probably the most costly and more serious route of IVF in a private fertility clinic. And going through that process and each time hoping it will be the one must take um, a huge physical and mental toll on you when at the same time you're trying to hold down a job. Yeah, it's like I can't... Now when I look back, I, like I forget all the anguish and all the grief because you're sort of happy you have your family now and you have different obstacles you're facing. Um, but at the time, I didn't think of anything else in the world, like nothing ma mattered to me except the idea to have a, a child. And looking back, I was probably suffering from some sort of infertility type depression that I never even realised because I'd be quite, you know, confident, I'd be chatty, but inside, all I could, this was all consuming. It's hard on the couple. And we weren't really talking about it because there's still a huge stigma. I, we didn't tell people we were going through it. We sort of did it ourselves privately. We went to early morning um, appointments. We um, didn't really take time off work. Um, 
thankfully at the moment uh, with, uh, the reproductive leave bill is going through the channel so people will now be able to hopefully if it passes through yeah. the stage in the draw. Tell us about that how important you believe that reproductive yeah, leave so it's a labor is. Yeah so it is a Labour Party bill Ivana Batchik when she was in the channel spearheaded the reproductive leave bill and it's being supported on a cross party basis and now the government is using their time to bring it through all stages in the channel and hopefully that will also be, follow on in the draw so that if you are going through um, Leave, if you require leave to go through IVF or fertility treatments or if you've had a miscarriage that you will actually get you know a separate leave that isn't associated with holiday or sick pay so it's really important for women because so many women go through either miscarriages or go through fertility treatment without any support from work colleagues and it's even a step towards you know removing the stigma so that you can tell colleagues listen yeah it's, and it normalizes things like yeah no I've had a miscarriage or I'm going through IVF and you can do it and not feel like you're on your own and so isolated. So it's hugely important. You describe it as hitting the jackpot um, yeah. when you became pregnant yeah. and you had twin boys yeah. at the end of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Others aren't so lucky. No, and I'm really conscious of that because it doesn't work for people all the time. And, um, you know, we were lucky that it, it, it did work. And I don't know how many more times I would have gone through it. I know I started looking up um, surrogacy and, you know, perhaps going down that road if it wasn't going to work. Um, and it's a pity that the new AHR bill doesn't properly deal with international surrogacy, but there is a Neuroctus committee going to be set up to deal with that. And we know, as you mentioned before, mm. that IVF is offered through the public health service in other countries, yeah, but yeah. not here. Not here. How soon do you think it will become a reality here and that couples will be offered that financial support that if they're in a position that it isn't working out for them having children, that they can get that help and they can do it and it isn't a cost issue that's stopping them. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what's required. And people are going so far as remortgaging their homes so that they can pay for a cycle of IVF. And that's just not fair. And some people don't even have the luxury of remortgaging their home and just have to do without it and do without the family they've always dreamed of. So myself and my colleague Fiona Lachlan have put together a funding bill, an IVF funding bill that will marry with the AHR bill. The AHR bill doesn't touch on funding. So like the main um, aim of our bill is to provide free IVF in public hospitals all around the country. Um, and it's just it's really crucial that that's that that's what's um, that's what cu couples sort of deserve. Couples, you know, pay their taxes. Infertility is, is it's characterised as a disease. It affects one in six couples nationally, and um, I think the couples deserve the support. A lot of people will never look for anything from the state, except they're just looking for a little help to have a family. And I think it's it's a small um, a small thing the state can do to help them. Senator Catherine Ardell speaking to me earlier with Fine Gael councillor Yemi Adenuga and Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly are still here with me and I'm joined via Skype by cognitive behavioural therapist and coach Anne Bracken. Um, Louise O'Reilly, we've heard about, you know, obviously this is now a, a policy area, that there is this push mm. that, you know, up, up to now there has been no funding or no support for couples who are going through a very distressing um, difficult journey, as you heard Catherine explain there from her own experience. What would Sinn Féin like to see happen when it comes to supporting couples who require fertility treatment? Well, it was in our uh, election manifesto that we believe that three cycles of IVF should be made uh, available to couples on uh, through the public health system. 
Uh, currently uh, in the north there's two and we have been campaigning uh, there to increase that to three. But two, notwithstanding that, is, is a very good start and it's certainly much further. It's really costly. On. It is, and uh, but we are not talking about huge numbers of people that will need it either. So, you know, the cost to the individual is actually huge. And I think it, it was it was sort of touched on there in the in the video clip, but not really explored. There are huge numbers of people who will not be able to afford any of it. Not one, not two. They, they won't be able to afford a cycle of IVF. And for those people, you know, I mean, if you have the means to do it, you know, that, that, that's fair enough. And people, people are doing it at the moment, but they're putting themselves into awful debt. You mm. know, they are doing things like they are selling their cars. They are taking second jobs. They are trying to make sure that, uh, you know, where they can, they're, they're taking out loans. I know people who haven't been on holidays for years, just simply cannot afford a holiday because they are putting everything that they have. So yet again, we have a two-tier health system in this state. We know that, but it affects couples who are having issues around fertility and it affects them very, very acutely because I would hate to think, you know, I'm sure we all would hate to think mm -hmm. that that is the reason why a couple can't start a family. And, you know, I mean, the, the senator there spoke about how important it was and, and, and you know, how herself and her husband, what they both went through. It's really tough. And it's even tougher to be going through something like that and not be able to talk about it openly. Yeah, you know, I that's, think that's one of the important. big, um, that's one of the big things. There's decreasing stigma around it. I think people feel like, you know, IVF, it does affect, you know, one in six couples and Bracken. But, you know, from a perspective, from a workplace perspective, for example, at the moment, you still have to keep something like that really quiet um, or you have to take annual leave you know to cover the times where you have to go for scans or other things or go through this or go through a loss together as a couple when it doesn't work out talk to us about the mental toll and um, that it takes on people that, that Catherine spoke about earlier as well you would have experience of that with couples you work with absolutely I mean individually and as couples it really impacts psychologically emotionally in fact 39% of people, uh, women going through fertility treatment meet a criteria for anxiety and depression. And if we consider actually during the lockdown, 10% uh, of Irish people met that criteria. So uh, just consider what that was like for people and how much we talk about mental health going through that experience. And people live with this daily. It, it literally, uh, I did some research myself around it, and 80% of, of those who responded said that they were, their thoughts were preoccupied with, uh, with essentially going through the treatment. Because when you invest that amount of money in any other area of your life, or physically, or psychologically, or in your presence to the treatment, um, you know, you would actually end up that you would end up with something and there's just no guarantee with mm -hmm. fertility treatment. The other thing you mentioned about was the work related uh, issues. So people might go to an appointment and they might go to an appointment at eight in the morning. They might have an, a conference at nine in the morning, but they don't actually they don't know if they're going to make that appointment. So it's an, it's a lot more stress. And when people do know about the fertility treatment that they're going through, they can provide them with this anecdotal kind of, oh, I heard about somebody else who went through IVF and, you know, she tried this or she ate broccoli or she did this and this helped her. Why don't you try that? So people get very, are quite intrusive into other people's treatment as well. So couples have to hold a lot. They have to hold the financial burden. They have to hold the emotional burden, the physical 
uh, stress of going through quite intrusive treatment and also that that big piece that you talked about there the uncertainty will it work will this happen this time or will I you know am I facing into another IDF and that can put your life on hold whether it's you're going on holidays whether it's Uh, you know, financially in in lots of areas. It becomes something that is simply all consuming, um, I think, as Catherine spoke about there, because, you know, the financial burden on as well and the urgency that you you desperately want to start a family. With all of this, there is that political push, Yemi. do you think that it needs to be fast-tracked now? Because we haven't had, act, despite good intentions, mm. we haven't had any action to date on it. Absolutely. I think that time is of the essence. They are families, women especially, who don't have time on their side and they only have maybe just one or two opportunities to go through this cycle. So it certainly is important that government, whilst it's working on um, facilitating funding for couples who want to go through the treatment, to also escalate um, and and, and fast track this um, as quickly as possible. I mean, if you take a look at the um, Children and Family Relations Act, um, when Simon um, Harris was in office, he had put in place um, a system where people could register their identity, donors could register no anonymity. So all of those um, are processes that have been um, enabled to ensure that things are fast-tracked. Support is also very, very important. A colleague of mine and a good friend, um, Senator Mary um, Siri Kearney, is working with a number of people who need the support. Look at what is happening in Ukraine. A number of Irish people go to Ukraine for the services. Generally, you'll find that is um, third world countries or developing countries that offer surrogacy. But Irish people go to Ukraine, and that's not a developing country. Uh, so right now, look at what is going on in that country. So people who have um, um, surrogates and I expecting children from there. They are deeply concerned about ongoings there and they need support. Yeah. And that's one of the things we, that my colleague is doing. We are in many ways, aren't we, Louise, scrambling to keep up here. Yeah. Because, you know, technology has come a long way for couples that years ago, in a previous generation, this wouldn't have been an issue insofar as if it wasn't working mm-hmm. it, it, to have children, then, then that was that. But now there is opportunity here and there is hope but the finances can dash those hopes. So putting the, the finances on, a, on that statutory footing, it is all complex, you know, in terms of where it goes, the assisted human reproduction bill and, and, and how it feeds in there. Like, in terms of turning this around, how quickly can it really happen? Well, I think it can, if the political will exists, it can happen very quickly. But let's be frank, I mean, we, we've had 11, 12 years of, of Fine Gael in government and they haven't delivered it. So I don't think it's a priority for them. Notwithstanding that, I think it is becoming a priority for the Oireachtas. So regardless of their own, the, the feelings of the party about it, I think it is something that is going to happen. So more and more we see that issues that specifically, and not exclusively, but specifically impact on women are getting getting debated on the floor of the doll. I think that's really good. I was at committee last week with my own piece of legislation in relation to paid leave for domestic violence. And again, that's something that, you know, we can push within the Oireachtas. So there may be a policy. I do, I'm, I'm not certain what the Fine Gael policy is, but I do know that their record in government is not delivering this. However, it can be delivered if the political will is there and if they get sufficient yeah. push the, from the Oireachtas. The, cro- the cross-party support on that is critical. And um, just to, to talk to you again about what couples who are in this situation can do now and um, in terms of, you know, I suppose on a very practical level, what can help 
them get through what can be a very emotionally loaded time? I think what you spoke about earlier about communication is key and also that they focus on other areas of their life. So, for example, if their career is going well, if, uh, you know, they may not be able to go on a holiday, like you mentioned, but perhaps they could have, you know, they can arrange to have self-care, you know, as in they could go away for a weekend, but perhaps not a week. It's really important that they invest in their relationship and they have fertility free zones but also that they're aware of what they think in terms of the type of beliefs that get triggered when, for example, if a cycle doesn't work. What can often happen is that people begin to self-blame or indeed they can begin blaming each other. And that's where it begins to rupture the relationship because they're under so much pressure. So it's really important that they explore the kind of beliefs that get triggered and to bring in a little bit more kind of self-compassion, self-understanding. Um, with each cycle that doesn't work, they'll go through a process of grief. Yeah. And one yeah. person in the couple might be really accepting of, of it, um, you know, that they're ready to move on very quickly onto the next cycle. But the other person might feel that real sense of loss for that hoped for child and actually go through a grieving process when that cycle doesn't work. So it's really trying to understand each other. Yeah, and that feeds into that call for the reproductive leave to be on offer for couples who are going through that mm. and indeed going through Definitely. through loss. And just to let you know, mm. you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines if you need to. My thanks to Yemi, Louise and Anne. After the break, electric car sales reach new record highs as diesel sales slump. from diesel and petrol to electric cars has long been touted but new figures show that change could be in motion quite rapidly. Motors bought a record number of new electric vehicles last month while diesel sales plunged. Joining me now is motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert and communications consultant Connor Faulkner. Um, Ger, the figures that are out, we know that you know electric cars, they are growing in popularity, but people may have been surprised to see that well, the likes of hybrid cars are outselling diesel cars mm. for last month. But in itself, electric cars are up to, they account for nearly 11% of, of new car sales, am I right, last month, a record high. But um, it is astonishing. It's, it's kind of nearly 200% or something on, on last year's figures. Yeah, it is very high and it has been. It, it's not much of a surprise to most of us who've been watching the market. These, you know, the figures have been increasing year on year and month on month. I think what is astounding are two things. First of all, if we look, this 2,714 sold just in the month of January. If you go back to 2019, and that's only three years ago, there were 3,444 sold yeah. in the entire year. 
mm. from January to December. You know, when you start to look at it like that. But what you said about diesel is really, really interesting. Actually, the market share for diesel and petrol now is 51%. So essentially, 50% of the new car buyers who walked into dealerships in January did not opt for a regular petrol or diesel car. If you go back to 2019, that was 86%. So the mindset has completely changed. So who's taking the plunge? in terms of going for the electric vehicle. Have we an idea yet? Is it, you know, older people? Is it, you know, surprisingly, I'm hearing that older people may be um, interested in going green, that we thought it might be a generational thing, but they're, they're willing to get on board. Um, is that the case? Or are we seeing it across all ages? We're seeing it more or less across all ages. You have to remember as well, new cars are they tend to be bought by older people full stop. The average age of a new car buyer is probably around 56. Younger people don't have the money for new cars. Mm. So it's going to be reflected in electric cars as well. Now, what we did see originally with electric cars was a very, it was very male, it was very tech orientated, it was very early adopter. We're not seeing that anymore. It's going mainstream. There's lots of women buying cars. Lots of families are buying electric cars and older people as well. So it isn't, there isn't one particular buyer anymore. Is it about, Connor, the fact that brands are improving, the technology is improving, that it's seen as being something that actually will work for people in terms of the mileage, the range that yeah. the cars will bring you. Very much so, Claire. Yeah, the technology is improving at an almost geometric rate and the amount of investment that's being poured into it is fantastic. I mean, Volkswagen have announced they're going to invest 40 billion euros in electric vehicles over the next 10 years. I mean, that is an astonishing amount of brain power and research and development pointed at improving the technology. And the analogy I've given before is if you, if you consider the first mobile phone, plenty of us are old, old enough to remember when the first mobile mobile phones came along. It was an eccentric yoke. It was twice the size of your pint. It didn't do an awful lot. Now we got from there to the iPhone in 12 years and we're seeing that sort of pace of development with electric cars. I, I test drove an electric car with ESB a number of years ago, seven or eight years ago now. Nice machine, very limited machine. The cars that, that are, are available to consumers now as electric cars, they are fantastic yeah. machines. People will say, though, the cost is still a huge issue when it comes to going electric. The government grants are there, um, but, but it's not hugely denting the cost. I mean, you're going to be paying a lot more for an electric vehicle versus the equivalent in diesel, aren't you? Yeah, the thing you have to consider is the, the, co the initial cost price is going to be more expensive for an electric car if you compare it to a similarly sized priced uh, or a similarly sized petrol or diesel. But you have to look at the running costs. They're far cheaper to run. So the actual cost of ownership is cheaper. The other thing to bear in mind, Claire, is the more new cars that are sold, the more there'll be a second-hand market. The new car market in Ireland is a tiny, tiny proportion of the cars that actually change hands throughout a year. So, you know, there will be second-hand cars, second-hand electric cars for people. There will be a decent market. It's slowly happening now at the moment so that's what we need to look towards people don't have to buy new electric cars yeah it will all take time in terms of reaching our climate targets um there's still 50 percent of new cars being bought are diesel or petrol so there's there's still a way to go in terms of, of where we go yeah but even that is progress Claire. i mean the, the last generation of diesel engines is probably being made now in terms of passenger cars anyway it, the move is underway um, and it, you know is the glass half full or half empty but for only 50 percent of cars to be traditional internal combustion engines is tremendous progress and those engines are also by the way vastly cleaner and greener than the equivalent diesel engine of 15 years ago 20 years ago so the you know, the air quality arguments are disappearing the tailpipe emissions arguments are disappearing we will still have other problems I mean electric cars do nothing to solve congestion uh, if we have an all-electric car fleet they have to be manufactured we need to get lithium from somewhere mm -hmm. and then in Ireland we're, we're still making 
dirty electricity on a grid that isn't big enough. So we won't solve all of our challenges with this move to electric cars, but it is a fantastic, fantastic step forward. You know, we spoke about second-hand hand cars. Their um, sales, are, I mean, are, um, prices are, are rocketing in, yeah. in that area. Why is that? Well, Geraldine alluded to it. You have many more second-hand transactions. Typically, there's about two and a half uh, used car sales for every new car registration every year. So at 100,000 new cars, little over 100,000 new cars registered last year. It would have been over 200,000, nearly 250 second-hand transactions. Now, when new car sales are depressed, one of the problems that happens is that you don't have second-hand cars in the pipeline for two, three years down the road. So there's a shortage of stock there. And it, it, there's also a delay, or it, it's the importation of cars from the UK seems to have slowed down this mm -hmm. year for whatever reason. Um, and right through the chain, there, there there's a, has been a, a delay in supply chains. So to some degree, a delay in bringing new cars cars to market and that pushes up second-hand demand as well but that will wash through I think Claire that's, but that's you're not paying more if you bought a car a second-hand car last year it's actually worth more right now isn't yeah. it it's perverse isn't it to, have, to buy a car and have it actually go up in value that used to only happen with sort of collectible brands and um, but it's something of a glitch uh, it, 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 this will wash through and um, particularly if we have robust new car sales this year and next year how soon do you think that's going to it'll, to it'll take a couple out. of years we, we, we had a period of years where there were relatively few new car sales that diminished subsequent second-hand stock and then of course we had the pandemic hit and that hit sales as well so throw in Brexit uh, limiting the importation of used cars from the UK and all of that in the mix just means a shortage of second-hand cars right now I don't think it's systemic though I think it'll wash through in the period of ne next couple of years it's an effect that will wash through I think okay that's promising well in terms of government targets as well briefly it'll only matter I suppose if diesel and petrol come off the road at the same time as electric vehicles um, going onto the road or is there a bigger issue there? Yeah, but I think what will happen is that will naturally happen because what people don't realise is if they went in and bought a petrol or diesel car in the last year or so, when they go to replace it, that car is not going to be available. It'll be replaced with an electric car. You know, even Nissan have announced that the Micra is going to be replaced by an electric car. You know, I mean... And this is where scrappage actually probably down the line comes into it yeah. all. Um, but that is it from us. That's all from the late team here. Good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.